Hello, and welcome to Serious Coin, the podcast where we have rich conversations about wealth. I'm Kelly Willis Green. Today's episode was inspired by a phone call I got a while back from an entrepreneur I know. And he asked me what I knew about family offices, which, if you're wondering, it's a private entity of professionals who have different disciplines and work together and for ultra high net worth families to help them manage the totality of their wealth. Now, this man had created significant wealth over the course of his lifetime. And yet, as he said, I'm still paying all the bills myself. I'm trying to figure out how much to leave my kids, how much to give away. He wanted a better system of organizing and managing his wealth, and he wasn't sure where to go, but he knew he didn't want to be sold products. And so that gave me the idea to do an episode on Family Offices 101. What are they exactly? How do you know if you need one? And how do you go about setting one up? Or is it better to hire a third-party family office? And so I feel super fortunate to have as my guest one of the leading family office experts in North America, Carolyn Cole of Cole & Associates. Carolyn designs custom family offices for ultra-high net worth families and also for financial companies who make those services available to their clients. She has so much experience, she's independent, and she has a pulse on the most pressing issues on the minds of the uber-wealthy. On top of all that, Carolyn has a, like a really interesting backstory of her own. If you can imagine it, she grew up on a ranch, married into a third-generation billionaire family, got divorced, and then as a single mom, raised two sons while building her own wealth through a career in financial services. She is just so credible on this topic of family offices through her personal and professional experience, and she's got great stories to tell and huge wisdom to share. You can tell I loved our conversation. I think you will too. So have a listen. I accidentally fell into this um, sort of space, uh, mostly because I married in to a family uh, that was very humble. I did not realize I was married into an affluent family until shortly before the wedding when I was asked to sign some paperwork. You had no idea? Well, I think I was just very naive. I think that all the signs were there. I just was completely young, naive, and oblivious to what it meant. You hadn't grown up with money? Well, I grew up very modestly, uh, dare I say poor. Uh, So I grew up in an environment where everyone had more than us. And when I um, left home, I I grew up on a ranch. And when I left home, um, the world was this shiny new place. And I often joke about um, had I had there been a turnip truck, I might have fallen off of it. That's a you know a saying where you're a bit of a bumpkin. Everyone was wealthier than me, so it didn't really matter. He <laughs> was like, okay, they had nicer things than I grew up with. Everyone had nicer things than I grew up with. So from my standpoint, it was really uh, I was woefully unprepared. But it wasn't being unprepared for how my first husband's family treated me. They were warm and welcoming and modest and and. Um, my mother-in-law would be clipping coupons, even though, which is still funny in my head. Um, but ultimately, it was about how other people would see me. And that was probably how I sort of brought, was like given awareness to what being married in actually means. That is certainly an experience that we share, this notion of married in. In fact, I didn't even know that was a thing until I met you. And you spoke about being married in. It's a noun, apparently. I always thought it was a verb. And I'm sure that we have similar experiences in some ways, but also very different experiences because 
you were marrying into a whole family system of wealth, weren't you? Yeah, my husband's third generation. My children are fourth generation. So my kids are now 24 and 31. And I remember, you know, starting to understand shareholders meetings and family office meetings when I was in my early 20s as a young mom going, I don't have any clue what this means. But then eventually, you know, evolving into the space where not only have I raised generation four, I have, you know, I divorced from that family, raised Gen 4, stayed very well connected to my former father-in-law, mother-in-law, and so forth, um, and really tried to bring some of my learnings to the families that I meet. And when I divorced, the first thing I did was I went back, I went back to work. I went and got a job. Actually, I finished my education and, and I give my, my former uh, in-laws a lot of credit for that, for, for supporting me through that schooling. And through that, I went back to work into the financial institutions and, and that led me to be where I am today. Was there ever a moment, either when you were dating or after you were married to your first husband, when you realized your lifestyle was so different from where you grew up? And there are things that come out of my mouth from time to time that I just never expected to say. It could just be, you know, what hotels we've stayed in or what travel we're doing. Did you ever have moments where you, you know, I'll call it a Wizard of Oz moment where you just realized, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore? Yeah, quite regularly for, for, for the, well, let me rephrase that. I think for part of it, yes, um, not in Kansas anymore. I think when I was taking diaper bags to family office meetings and learning about what shareholders agreements and things like that were and learning about the different assets that were in the family. Um, it, you kind of go like, Oh my goodness, this, this is not, this is not like what other people do or talk about at the dinner table. Um, you know, Christmas dinner when, you know, plans roll out for uh, a capital expansion, um, for an operation and you're going, this is Christmas. Okay. Welcome to the family. <laughs> like, Okay, so you know, moving on, and then there's the turkey. Um, so, so yes, there were those moments, but then I think what this for me, what the balance was, where there all these times where everyone is like, okay, well, how do we save money? How do we, you know, as a family, how do we make sure everything's efficient? Like, there's there was such a focus on not overspending, not flaunting. Um, so I I think in this specific for me, it was just like really odd dichotomy of. Yes, there's affluence, but there's just this incredible humility, non-flaunting, and sense of responsibility to the community and the employees that work there. So I learned, yeah, I, I think I, I literally, I, I think I got so lucky um, because I don't think that a lot of Meridians have experienced that in the same way that I have, but it's, it's, it's shaped how I approach my work. It's shaped how I approach my parenting. It's shaped how I approach my belief about money gave me insights into good quality people. You mentioned your mother-in-law clipping coupons. And I know that in one interview, you said that it wasn't until you met that family that you became aware of humble wealth, as you put it. And you learned in those early years, you said that shattered all of the media propaganda about what wealthy people should look like. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. So, I mean, it, it, it it's a very unique space because you grow up and you watch television, you watch all these things. And you can see, I think it's even worse today when you have the the 
you know, global, whatever it is, royal family, Kardashians, whoever you want to talk about around the world of the affluence that's there. And, and so I think the average person sort of gains, oh, well, that's what wealthy people should be like. But in reality, around the world, there's this quiet wealth, this quiet money. These families have gone out and done remarkable things, and they're never in the news. They're not on any lists. They're not, not on Forbes. And I see a lot of those, and I work with a lot of them, and I really enjoy working with that because that's also where my, my, you know, my youthful experience with wealth came from. Right. I think that even among wealthy people, they look at those lifestyles and think, oh, should we be living like that? We know we have money, but we don't live like that. And other wealthy people we know don't live like that. So what's that all about? I think it's confusing for everyone. It is, especially in multi-generations where you have generation one, maybe the wealth creating generation or generation two wealth creating generation. And then you have three, fours and fives and they go, okay, I, I'm supposed to go to family office meetings and learn about the enterprises but I need to borrow money from mom and dad to get a car because they won't just indulge me. But my friends that I went to private boarding school with, their parents bought them cars. So there's this big disconnect between how families um, manage their wealth intergenerationally and the values that they bring to those children and adult children. And there's a big discrepancy. I, I was working with a, a gentleman who had a, and we'll get into this a little bit, multifamily office where it was two families who decided to join resources, the essence of a true multifamily office, to co-invest and, and so forth on and share staff. And he broke away from that other family. And I asked him, why did you break away? Why did you decide to separate? And he said, because the way the other family um, approached their wealth did not align with his and his wife's values for their children. And it was such a disconnect that they chose to separate their multifamily office from each other. They're still very good friends and they still absolutely co-invest together, but it was a values issue on approaching wealth that made the difference. That's a perfect segue to open the conversation about family offices. And I want to start with the definition because even among wealthy people, I don't think it's a concept that's universally understood. And so I guess I'll ask you just to put everybody on the same page, how do you define family office? I define a family office as a collaboration hub for professionals and family members to uh, focus on a goal and objective and execute on that goal and objective. So it is really, truly a combination of what does the family want to have happen? What functions do they want? What do they want done within the family office? And then bringing the right professionals around that, holding everyone accountable, project managing through it. To me, that is what a family office is. From there, there are a lot of different ways that can go, but that's the core purpose. And broadly speaking, let's talk about what some of those primary functions are. I don't want to use silos because the whole point of a family office is to coordinate, but there are distinct functions. One of the ones I talk about a lot is an administrative family office where there are just way too many things going on for, for a couple or a few family members to manage, whether that be shared cottages or shared assets, multiple homes, all of those kinds of things where you have multiple income streams, administration, consolidated reporting, tax jurisdictions, all of that becomes very overwhelming and it kind of creeps up on you. So an administrative family office is when you kind of hit that wall and go, I need help, but I'm not even sure how to organize this. 
And so that's when you can get some resources to help you with that. An embedded family office is where there's an operating company and a lot of those, oh my gosh, it's overwhelming. I need some help with this. That has been turned over to the team members within that operating business. So they take on, without really realizing it, other duties as assigned, which are for the family. And you don't really realize you have a family office unless you sell the business. Or if you went through and you said, okay, stop doing anything that's outside of your core purpose for the business and stop doing any family work, the family would go, oh, shoot. (laughs) Okay, what do we do now? Right. The third type of family office is called an institutional family office. And that's where it's less about family. It's really more about redeployment of capital in a variety of direct investments. It works like private equity. So work with a family that has 17 operating businesses. They don't see the family members. The family members are there once a year at the AGM and dividend time going, okay, what's going on? How did we do? That institutional family office is run completely separately. You know, there are 40 staff and that's, that's its own private equity firm, not fund, firm. Then you have those legacy family offices where somewhere in there, whether it be administrative, embedded or institutional, where they want to transition wealth to the next generation after they're gone. So a legacy family office comes into play when you are binding your bloodline together through ownership of assets. So you can have all of the others, but if you say, no, I'm not going to bind my kids together or my grandkids together for assets, you don't need a legacy family office. So I've had people say, oh, I'm going to set up a family office. Tell me what you need. So are you intending to tie your children and grandchildren together through money? No, I'm going to divide it three ways and be done with it. Okay, great. You have three kids, you need an administrative family office, not a legacy. A legacy family office takes on how to transition values, education, learnings about the businesses, that kind of thing. Family offices aren't a new concept. In fact, they date back to ancient Roman times when the role of the major domo, who was the head servant to a family, was to manage the household and financial affairs of the owner. So the family office model as we know it today has evolved over centuries. And in North America, the concept took root during the Industrial Revolution, when titans like JP Morgan and JD Rockefeller set up their own teams of experts to manage their finances. And as Carolyn described, the modern family office can have several different forms and serve different functions. It just depends on the family's needs. But within the industry, you'll often hear the terms single family and multifamily office. And Carolyn and I talk about these. So for context, a single family office is just as it sounds. It's made up of a group of professionals set up to manage the wealth of a single bloodline. Though there may be many family members, multiple generations, and even different branches of that one family. The multifamily office is when several families get together out of a desire to pool their resources and deploy capital together for greater efficiency. A third type is the commercial multifamily office, which you may already be familiar with. It's a business with a core function. It could be a bank, an accounting firm, a wealth manager. They design a service offering under the banner of family offices for their ultra high net worth clients. And so I asked Carolyn what families should be thinking about if you're trying to determine which of these three is right for you. I always start with what's your pain point 
And then what are your objectives? So some people will start a family office, especially administrative, because I have a pain point. I feel things are just a little bit out of control and I need help to administer them. Other people will start a single family office because they want to 10x their wealth in 20 years. It's, it's about, okay, their empire building. And so their 25-year goal is to 10 times their net worth. Well, that's a very different objective. So when I'm working with a family and saying, what is your pain point? What are your objectives? From there, I can figure out where you are in the family office space and where you need to get to. And then I can start to uncover what's already in place. How can we utilize what's in place? How can we make it better, more efficient? And then I can help them determine, do you actually want individual staff? Or how many do you want? Um, what type of staff do you need? I think one of the challenges I see in the single family office space is a lot of them are born out of a triggering event of selling an operating entity or selling something. And there's this liquidity event. And what I see is after you sell a business, I don't know how many people on this call have gone through the selling of an entity or selling of a business. It's emotional. It's draining. It's incredibly uh, challenging, both at home and at work. And then this entity that you've built and put all so much into and then spent two or three years selling, at the end of the day, you're exhausted. So what do you do? You just hit the easy button and go, okay, who do I know? Oh, I know my CFO. I'm going to pull them out, bring them with me. And I know my current investment professional. I'm that lawyer I've known since I was you know, in, in grade school. Okay, suddenly you have a deal team of people that have 50% called trust, but the other 50% called actual knowledge and experience in the family office is missing. And so I see a lot of single family offices set up um, with good intentioned people, but not necessarily the right team members to help them succeed. I want to come back to that as well, but let's also talk about the minimum asset level, because sometimes people wonder, do I have enough to have my own family office. And I read stats like 100 million. I've seen as low as 50 million. It seems to be all over the map. What's your take on that? I think they're asking the wrong question. The question shouldn't be how much. The question should be, what are your intentions? If you have a $50 million net worth and you plan to divide it amongst your children, you need a little tiny bit of administration, you probably shouldn't set up your own family office. If you have a $15 million net worth and you want to literally double your money in your lifetime or your objectives are very aggressive in growth and you want to build an empire that's outlasting your great grandkids, that's the time to actually look at how do I structure this correctly? Because how you structure it at the beginning can save you a lot of money, heartache, headache, and, and professional fees in the long run. So again, I go back to it's not how much, it's what are your intentions for your wealth? And what about typical costs? Uh, well, I guess there isn't a typical if you're, you're going to tell me there isn't because it depends on the family office. But. Well, there are costs, but I think it's about um, a couple of things. Let's talk about people could either overfund their single family office and fail, or they can underfund it and fail, or they think that they're going to create a family office and monetize it and fail. So you want to be really, really careful and say, Number one, if you're willing to spend a whole bunch of money on your family office staff, is it reflective of the revenue that you have coming in and the objectives that you have? And who's holding them accountable? And who's managing that? Because if you go from managing opco to managing a wealth co, you still need the same structures. You still need to spend some money in order to manage that wealth co. What I see sometimes is single family offices being set up where they overhire 
And through that over hiring, they realize that they've probably hired the wrong people or they've hired people that they trust and they're friends and then they can't let them go. My number one rule is never hire your friends in your family office. If they're your friends and you want their advice, put them on your board, hire people you can fire. So those are the types of things that I look at. So the other thing is people don't want to spend any money on a family office. They go from Opco to Wealthco and they're like, oh my goodness, why would I pay fees? This is horrible. But they forget that, you know, they're, they were running a $500 million business last week. They're still running a $500 million, okay, less taxes or whatever, depending on your jurisdiction. And then they're, okay, well, what is that going to cost me? And then they want to nickel and dime it. And that can be a very dangerous thing. Um, one of my friends always says, the only thing more expensive than the top professionals are the amateur professionals <laughs> because it's going to cost you a long run. I get it, you know, but it's still, it's a definite mind shift that going from Opco to Wealthco, as you say, uh, I, I've often said about entrepreneurs that when you're selling a business, you're automatically buying a new one. And it's called the wealth management business, whether you think about it like that or not. <laughs> And you have to figure out how you're going to run that business and who you're going to hire to help you. Or, or sometimes, you know, there's not a liquidity event, but you inch your way to that state of having such complexity that you need help managing it as your balance sheet has grown over time. And you, you can't apply the same old systems and ways of doing things. And I relate to this because speaking for ourselves, you know, we've been slow to make that mindset shift. And sometimes, you know, we look at each other and we feel like these two little hamsters on a treadmill still doing a lot of things ourselves because it just feels indulgent or somehow wrong to hire people to do this. So I, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying I can relate to your scenario of underfunding. <laughs> underfunding. It, it's, a, it's, it's an issue because not only do you feel like you said, maybe guilty about spending the money or other people don't do that or you're not comfortable with it. Um, you forget that by hiring people who are really good at what they do and giving them very clear roles and then just holding them accountable reduces your stress, increases your quality of life as a family, as a couple, and allows you to focus on things that might be more important, whether that be your next generation, your children, your grandchildren, travel, art, your other interests. So, I'm a proponent of saying, let's find the balance. When I set up family offices, I look at where are you? Where do you need to go? Who's in your ecosystem that works that you want to keep? Who can we shift or needs to be shifted and how? And really, is there a less expensive way to accomplish what you're trying to do by using a commercial multifamily office, for instance? Or is this is something that you actually need to invest more in that you're not investing enough in? And, and that's where I think that being impartial and having no quote unquote product to sell other than having those conversations and bringing the family members through this process, I believe it's very helpful. Agreed. And I, I want to ask you, take a, a function, say, estate planning. It's an important function to a family office, but I can't imagine that you need a full-time estate lawyer. I mean, maybe if you've got multiple family members and multiple generations, but for, for most people, more simplified structures, you need an estate plan that needs to be looked at every couple of years or if something changes, but not all of these professionals would need to work full time under your hub, correct? Correct. Absolutely correct. And so what happens if you kind of ad hoc it and you don't 
recognize that. Um, you can either overstaff or understaff, but it's really about setting out a strategy. Over the next 12 to 18 months, I say, what does my family need? And what professionals do I need to bring in to accomplish that? And then who's going to project manage it? Because family office truly is nonstop project management. So your project today might be acquiring a business. Your project tomorrow might be redoing an estate plan. Your project after that. And so it's multiple project management. Um, and that's often what a, a single family office needs is someone who's running all of that. And the professionals that come in and out are, are suppliers. So I always start, and this is why my, my business is about family office strategy and design. What's the strategy for your family? What's your 25 year strategy? And what tactics do we need to bring in to accomplish those in the short and long term? And those are going to change and evolve as circumstances change and evolve. But if you go out and you just hire, I want the best investment manager in this in-house, I want a lawyer and I want an accountant, which is what a lot of people do. Well, and then you go buy an asset in a different country, but your accountant is a tax accountant for the jurisdiction you're in. You still have to go out and hire the specialist for what you need. So I am very much um, aware of how many assets do you have in that jurisdiction? Who do you need to hire in-house? Who do you need to just retain for an annual basis? And who do you bring in when and how? So again, think about the strategy. Every single professional that you bring into play should be there to deploy on a strategy that has been created somewhat independent from them. If you bring in the professionals first, their agenda will drive your strategy. It's interesting you say that because you probably saw the same report I did from Cap Gemini that found that ultra high net worth individuals are favoring family offices over traditional wealth providers such as private banks and wealth managers for some of those very reasons that they see them as a more trusted partner and not just a provider of services. They're more strategic, not transactional. And they cited a deeper emotional connection. Well, that's a huge, huge statement and, and awareness that I, I really enjoyed reading about. Um, because when you're in the scenario of not just creating wealth, and you think about it, if you're in a public company and, you, you, and you're the CEO of a public company, you're not worried about every one of your employees or the shareholders' children or how the wealth impacts those children. But if you're the focal point of a multi-generational family office where there are multiple businesses involved, or you have three or 4,000 employees and only four of them are family members, the dynamics change dramatically. The emotion changes dramatically. You know, you and I were chatting before about um, families who come to me and they're very concerned about their kids being entitled. And I, I love listening to them because sometimes it's, oh, your 30-year-old doesn't want to have a job and wants to continue to have you pay for their life. Or you have the 16-year-old who's going, oh, come on, why can't you get me the new cell phone? Well, the 16-year-old wanting a new cell phone is just being a teenager, and that's normal. So I have families go, I think my children are entitled. No, you know, that's not necessarily entitled. That's teenage brain. Yeah. Entitled is a little bit different. And then you have to figure out, okay, so how do you minimize that? How do you manage that? When you're in that space, going to work for a public company and going to work for a family business are completely different emotional spaces. So I think what that report brought in was, yes, you, you, you do have different emotions. 
um, attached to wealth, money, transition, and all of your decisions when you're impacting your family and your bloodline. The family office can often be a buffer uh, or a safe place to discuss some of those emotions as well. In fact, I was just talking to somebody the other night who said they used a multifamily office to be an additional resource for conversation for their kid. And it's a great way to use the family office services. So every family will structure it a little bit differently. Um, and I'll give you an example. I was, um, I've been uh, hired by a large uh, single family office. It was the family office team that found, approached me and said, Carolyn, we have a rising generation. Um, his, you know, he will ultimately inherit in the billions. Um, and we want you to help him, help educate him. Now, his family's business and what he does as a married 30 something are very different, but he's being asked to go to the shareholders. Um, meetings and he's being asked to become a good shareholder for that enterprise, even though he'll never work in the enterprise, he will be a shareholder. And they asked me to come in and do a customized education program for him. So what I do is I sit with them and say, okay, what, what do you want to learn? Why do you want to learn it? How does that apply to your life right now? And so I take him through a very private space of how to learn about what questions to ask, what not to ask. If you don't know what to ask, you know, write it down, send me a text in those meetings and, and we can have a conversation, but it's being discreet enough to allow these adult inheritors a safe place to ask questions from their family office professionals and to gain an education at the same time as being able to do what their parents said, which is be whatever you want to be, go do what you want to do. So they've gone out, educated on what they want to do. It's not in the family business. And then years later realize, oh, shoot, I, I'm still going to have to figure out some of these business basics because I'm going to be that shareholder. So family offices are a great tool to help with that. What is the typical catalyst or is there one when a family calls you up and says, Carolyn, I think we need a family office or, or we need help. What are typically the circumstances? Uh, there's usually a change. You know, something triggers it. There's either been a someone has passed away in the family. There's been a liquidity event. Um, sometimes it's just incredible stress. Like I said, the pain points of I'm just overwhelmed. I'm not enjoying my life. We have five homes. What's wrong with me? I don't know what to do. But I should, I should be able to handle this. Um, so there's always a, there's just typically, I shouldn't say always, but typically a trigger, um, which is unfortunate because it would be nice for people to go, wait a second, I could access that before we hit a pain point. I would say one of the biggest challenges that I see with setting up family offices is through the liquidity event when they're selling a business or divesting. Um, looking at how to set it up in advance is incredibly helpful, uh, especially from a tax planning perspective and will and estate planning perspective. But a lot of people get through the the liquidity event and then try to build it after and and that and, and in fairness it, i understand because going through the transition is is challenging right to throw on one more thing and oh we'll just do it at the end but the reality is if you, they did it before or alongside of it will be far more beneficial for them in the long run carolyn and i talked about the fact that the period after a liquidity event is a critical time to reflect and really set yourself up for your next chapter. Often the advice is to not make any major decisions for a year. And I think that's good advice, but neither is it a year to just do nothing. And Carolyn says she tells her clients to use this time in a meaningful way to really learn about themselves. Like, who am I now? 
what are the new opportunities that are in front of me? And what are some of the new risks? What are my blind spots? And unfortunately, all too often, we have this tendency to rush into action because it's soothing and it's what we've always done. But Carolyn says it can have major consequences, including significant loss of capital. Doing something, anything can lead to incredible losses. I worked with someone who took about $500 million off the table from an um, enterprise and two and a half years later had about 50% of the net worth left because doing something was buying a whole bunch of stuff. It was staying active, staying busy, helping all of the friends, buying into things that everybody, and then he had no strategy. And, and, and two and a half years later, he's like, well, that was not a good thing. Yeah. Other family I worked with where they said, okay, we're going to do nothing, but we are going to give ourselves permission to spend X amount of dollars. We've lived very modestly. We've done very well. Now we're going to have this time to spend. That can be incredibly, incredibly detrimental because you get into the habit of spending. Mm -hmm. So let's just say we're going to spend X million dollars. We're going to give ourselves the luxury. We'll get a new house. We'll get a new car. We'll do this, this, and this. And then all of a sudden, a year and a half later, you're hooked on a new lifestyle. So it wasn't about giving yourselves the one-time permission. How do you unwind that? It's seductive. Yeah. And your friends expect more from you. Oh, you threw a big party for that aunt? Well, that now your other your uncle wants a big party. Or I've seen people go out and buy vacation property and all of a sudden they're all their nieces and nephews start showing up because auntie and uncle are wealthy. Like those are the kinds of things you have to be really careful about. And also, you know, if you buy that home in some super exclusive community, you know, say it's the the beach house in Malibu or the mountain home at Summit Powder Mountain. Well, now you're dealing exclusively with super wealthy people and there's there's a certain lifestyle expectations. So it's not just the the single capital outlay that one-time purchase of the house, but there's there's lifestyle inflation. It's it's a slippery slope, don't you think? Absolutely. And our brains are wired to want to be part of the collective. Because if you look at psychologically um, isolation from your community for most species and certainly for humans over time meant death, you, know, you needed the community to survive. Yeah. So we're wired to want to be part of our community. And when you buy into those communities, whether it's the Porsche Club of America, whether it is, it doesn't really matter what it is. You want to belong and that belonging drives you to spend. So really watching, again, when you set up the family office, let's talk about those things. What are your spending habits? I ask every family member, are you a spender or a saver? What are the answers normally? They can be anything, anything. And, and I've worked with numerous times, I've worked with identical twins. So identical DNA, one will be a spender, one's a saver. The best answer I had was a 10-year-old girl who said, well, I really like to spend other people's money, but I <laughs> love saving my own. Out of the mouths of babes. But isn't it great? She knew. And I said to her, tell me why you like to save. And she said, it makes me feel safe. Mm. Now here's a 10 year old who wants for nothing, is in a billion dollar family, who hides money in her stuffed animals. You can't tell me that that's a learned behavior. But it's a feeling that someone gets from how they interact with money and what it means for them. So even in the family office space, I want to understand who in your family um, 
Is a spender a saver? How do they react? Why do they react that way? And then what happens if a spender marries a saver or a saver marries a spender? Or you have someone who's married into the environment where their family isn't as wealthy and then all those dynamics come in. So your family office should be set up to be a safe space for, for you to go to and say to someone, look, I want to help with this aspect. Can you find me someone? Because no single family or multifamily office will be experts in everything, but they should be your primary resource for finding those specialists. I think the whole relationship with money is something that's fascinating. I'd love to do a whole other episode on that as well. So maybe you'll come back. Um, you'd mentioned when we were talking that another question you ask is, are you a family first family or a wealth first family? Explain the difference. Oh, that's a big difference, but su- subtle, but massive. So a wealth first family office is structured to grow the wealth of the family, but it may come at the cost of the emotions of family members which means they will forego healthy relationships or the wants and desires of family members to ensure that the wealth is sustained. So give me an example of how that might play out uh, at the boardroom of the family office. Okay, so boardroom of the family office versus boardroom of the businesses. A boardroom of the family office might have um, a family member come forward and say, I want to make a movie. I want to be a, a, I want to be a film producer and I want to go make this movie. Okay, great. Our, their primary business is actually um, construction. So do you take money and resources out of what could feed that family's continuation for construction and put it into an entirely new industry because your family member's interested in it? So a, a money-first family office or a wealth-first family office protects their core assets regardless of family interests. Or it will say family members are not allowed to work here unless they're fully qualified. So they're very focused on the protection of that wealth generation. The family first family office is going to be a structure where we say, who in the family has different interests? How can the wealth that we have created support those family members in their interests? And we're not afraid to lose a bit of return in order to ensure that those family members are fulfilled. So you, it, the return is not necessarily your primary focus. The development of the human interest and the aspects of those families is the priority. And is it split right down the middle, 50-50 with the families you see, or is one model more common than the other? They are both 50-50. And ironically, sometimes where I ask that question and I think the answer is going to be, well, we're absolutely a family first, they're not. And the person who I'm always asking that question of is usually the wealth creator or the matriarch patriarch of the family, because they're the ones that are setting up the family office. But then I have to ask myself, okay, what does everyone else think? So then you layer it and go, okay, if that matriarch and patriarch are no longer with us, will this shift? And how does it shift? Because every generation gets to redefine what the purpose and function of their family office is. That's why you ask the questions. Which leads me to the last segment, which I always enjoy, where I get a chance to ask my guests a few money questions. And I'll just fire them off rapid fire, whatever comes to mind. I'd love your take. What one piece of advice would you have for someone, a married in, for someone who's just married into wealth? 
Be prepared that other people are going to see you differently, even though you don't see yourself differently. Even your closest friends, um, family members. Wow. For whatever reason, be prepared for that. They will see you differently. You could have said the same thing five years earlier, but it comes out of your mouth after you've married in and people will perceive you differently and they'll take it a different way. We definitely need to do a segment on that. What is the biggest misconception about what it's like to be wealthy in your view? Oh, that it's easy. That life, it's just easy. If, you, if, you're, if you're born into wealth or you have wealth, that somehow life is just easy. And that is furthest from the truth. Wealthy people get sick. They, have, they get sad. They suffer from depression. They get fired. Um, wealth sometimes amplifies the challenges. And so for someone who is, is fundamentally a lower middle class, that sounds ridiculous because what they're struggling with is something around, can I feed my family? And if that could be solved, then they think all the solved, well, everything will be solved. And yet there's still significant issues for families that have wealth. And that's often just ignored or, or pushed aside. Spend, invest, or give away money. Which is the most challenging for you right now? Spend, invest, or give away. Um, probably investing. I would definitely say investing is a challenge. And, and it's also because I worked in the investment management, wealth management world for 25 years, so I'm somewhat jaded. Um, also because I see opportunities everywhere. So I, you know, I'm a natural entrepreneur. So then it's like, okay, not all ideas are good ideas, Carolyn. Like yeah. you have to scale that back. <laughs> um, so I would say the investment. And I had to rein myself in and say, okay, get a strategic process for yourself on what are your 20-year goals? And will this investment actually amplify those rather than this is a really good idea and I think it's going to work out. But those, you know, I've got to, I have to rein myself in on that. That's good. And thank you for your honesty on that because I think a lot of people relate to that. Who is someone you look to as a role model or someone you admire in terms of how they deal with their wealth? I would say very discreetly, there is a couple that I am, am very good friends with, and I, I can't use their name, but I look to them because they have figured out how to raise their children well. Um, they have figured out how to live a very respectably good lifestyle without flaunting. Um, they've maintained their friends, even though their friends have different financial ab abilities. So they seem to have figured out how to maintain that balance. And I look to that and go, that is fascinating. Because a lot of people, when they have managed to come into wealth, a lot of their friends leave or their friends disappear or there's nuances there. And I think they've just done an amazing job. What's the most important money lesson you want your children to know? That happiness is intrinsic and money has nothing to do with that. The money lesson for my kids is whether you have it or whether you don't have it, happiness is on you. Uh, if, if you are unhappy, it does not have to do with how much money you have in the bank. And if you're happy, it doesn't have anything to do with money in the bank. Thank you for listening. And I hope you learned as much from this conversation as I did. I want to thank Carolyn Cole for sharing her wisdom and her experience with us. I loved that question of, are you a family first family or a wealth first family? And I can imagine how the answer to that 
would drive really different decision-making. I hope this episode gave you a few things to think about. It certainly did for me. And if you want to get in touch with Carolyn, you could reach her through her website, coleandassociates.ca. And if you enjoyed the content, please leave us a rating or a review. We so appreciate it. And again, thanks for listening to Serious Coin. Serious Coin podcast is provided for your general interest only, and nothing we discuss should be taken as investment, tax, legal, or other professional advice. Always talk to a licensed professional before you take any financial decisions.